Hey everybody, Zach here. Before we get started with the podcast, I just want to let you know about our sponsor, Anchor. We're new to podcasting here at Salty Saints, and Anchor has made it so easy for us to get started. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, so let me explain a little bit about it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything that you need to make a podcast in one place. The best part about Anchor, though, is that it's absolutely free. So if you, like us, want to get your word out there, you want to try your hand at podcasting, make sure that you download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome back to another episode of Salty Saints Podcast. My name is Zach, and I'm sitting here with Randy. What's going on, Randy? Uh, Merry Christmas, Zach. Merry Christmas to you as well. Today, we are going to be talking about the incarnation of Christ. That's, you know, you know we're, we're coming up to Christmas. No matter when you listen to this, think back to the Christmas that... Uh, that you're able to celebrate and see if uh, you might not have some of the same thoughts that uh, I did. I, I sometimes I just get distracted by the cuteness of Christmas. Little baby, born in a manger, and I forget sometimes of the absolute awesomeness, the theological significance of God becoming man and being born as one of us. Yeah, it, it's pretty easy to get wrapped up in sort of our traditional cutesy Christmas. Yeah, I think that's fair. And we, we overplay that cuteness because first century Palestine, there was not much cute about it. And uh, <laughs> Jesus being born in a feeding trough of animals, um, I'm not so sure that Mary looked at him and said, oh, isn't this cute? <laughs> I think she probably said, oh, my gosh, how am I going to bring this kid up now? <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, I know you had several points to make about just the significance you know, of the incarnation. One of the things that I was uh, thinking these days, a couple of nights ago, I was just meditating as uh, sometimes, I guess, in my better moments, I'm, I'll, I'll think a little bit about... Uh, 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 the Bible and the Lord, and I was thinking about Christmas and just sort of came to realize that I, I believe that there are two moments that pretty much define all of history. All of history revolves around these two moments, and they're separated by 33 years. One is the incarnation of Christ, uh, God becoming man that we celebrate on December the 25th. And then the other is the resurrection of Christ. It's God being born as a man and then God coming back to life as a man in the resurrection. All of history revolves around that. We set our very calendar by the first of those, and the second of those determines our life and, and how we live. Okay. I, I'm I'm intrigued. I uh, should we start with the incarnation then? Sure, sure. Um, I I don't think maybe when uh, Easter rolls around we can do resurrection. I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we fair. might want to separate that by a little bit, and that'll give us something to talk about in on in in come April. But uh, yeah, the incarnation. So the concept, at least theoretically, is fairly simple. God becomes man. And to do that, he is actually born. He chooses to be born by a virgin. Something separates this birth from every other birth that ever took place before or has taken place since because Jesus had a mother and a divine father, uh, a a 
uniquely induced um, conception. One one of the things that uh, I came to realize, actually, when I was studying a different passage, I was studying the passage of the Transfiguration. So in the Transfiguration, um, I believe it's Luke that writes that a cloud descended on them and enveloped them. And from the cloud, they get this voice of God saying, this is my son, I am pleased with him. And the Greek word that's used for enveloped is only used in one other place. And that's when the angel Gabriel talks to Mary and says, the Holy Spirit will overpower you. He will come over you. He will envelop you. So the close, intimate relationship that God had with Jesus in the moment of the transfiguration is the very same way that the Holy Spirit describes what was going to take place with Mary. God will have that kind of a closeness to Mary. And uh, when she comes away from that closeness, she's pregnant. Hmm. That's super interesting. I I know there are other religions um, that have made claims of virgin births or made references to that. But I also know that that's, there's a lot of controversy surrounding those beliefs. Um, well, of course you get it in Star Wars Episode One. The famous. <laughs> Yeah, I think George Lucas knew what he was doing there. Just a I think so because you know he's he. Uh, I contend that most current, um, uh, uh, not horror, but uh, action movies mm-hmm. or or most current movies, if you look deep enough, you will see a Christ story there. It's the story of a of a figure who many times even gives his life. And here's George Lucas saying, "Well, let's uh, let's flip that around and uh, let's let's make a virgin birth out of this." Right, right. <laughs> Not only are other religions uh, there are other religions that claim miraculous births, but there are other religions that also claim that God becomes man. Okay, but they're very different from the incarnation, and that's kind of what I was going to get at. Is is how. We like to, to point and go, oh, it's the same story. Or those that would try and discredit it would say, oh, it's the same story. But it never is. No, it's, it it's, never is. It's it's always um, uh, the, the gods of these other characters or of these other stories are always so human in, in their in their well, emotion. You know what I mean? That's the thing. So in Greek mythology, you get a number of times – God comes down, or a God comes down, and disguises himself as man. He doesn't become a man. He disguises himself as a man. And typically what he's doing when he does that is he's disguising himself for his own lustful purposes. Right. Frequently to have sex with a woman and and the child that's born is now a, a great hero, or sometimes to take vengeance on an enemy. Um, uh, but, but he's always after what he can get out of this. And that's not at all what the incarnation is. First of all, God doesn't disguise himself as a man. He actually becomes man. And he does it not for what he can get out of it, but for what he can give to man. Right. It's. I was reading recently. Um, I think it was Kinlaw. Um, yeah, let's start. The mind with, of Christ, or let's start. Let's with start with Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. Um, talking about how the significance of the incarnation is that the unchanging God is allowing Himself to change in order to meet the situation. Yeah. Like he he's. He he does not change and then still is becoming a man. You know, like that's that's beautiful. It's it so is. It, it's it, gorgeous. And it's mysterious because it's like, well, 
You know, how, how can the unchanging God do that? But then at the same time, it's like, well, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. You know, it's... In a, in a very real sense, I mean, there's there's a reason why this is the first part of the New Testament. Because if you look at the Old Testament, try to understand what's going on there. Uh, I believe that the Old Testament is the story of man trying to recapture the Garden of Eden on his own. Yeah, okay. God throws Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden because of their sin. And so Adam and Eve go out and they have children. Those children sacrifice to God, and uh, that's good, that's great. But then all of a sudden, uh, one of those kills the other brother. So you have four people living on the earth, and 25% of them are homicidal maniacs. They they have committed murder. Um Adam and Eve try to make it on their own, and they fail. So you get Noah. The Lord saves Noah. Noah comes out, and he makes an, he makes a, an altar, and he sacrifices uh, to God on that altar. And the very next verses is, and he grew grapes, and he made wine, and he got drunk, and he lay there naked in front of his sons. Uh, Noah couldn't make it on his own. So then you get Abraham. God calls Abraham. And Abraham tries. And what does he do? Well, he goes to Egypt and he says to Sarah, pretend you're my sister. I'm afraid they're going to do something bad to me. Because even though you're 80 years old, you're still a good-looking woman. And uh, Abraham can't make it. You get his son. Uh, You get uh, Isaac and Jacob and, and Joseph. And the story goes on. Moses and all of these guys, for as good as they are, they always mess up. You get the king, Saul. Saul almost immediately falls away. Then David, and and David messes up. And it's just the story of failure after failure after failure till you get to Jesus. Then when Jesus comes, it's like God says, okay, man has tried to please me. So let's give him an example of what really, what, what, a, what a God follower really looks like. And he himself, one of the persons of the Trinity, uh, becomes man and lives as man and lives a perfect life. It's beautiful. So, something else, though, too, you know, um, tying it in with the Old Testament, you know, he he came to be a a, a perfect high priest for us as well. That's right. Um, and, and something I'd read recently was, um, had he just been man, had he would have never been able to be the perfect high priest. He had to be both fully God and fully man, because in order to be a perfect high priest to us, he couldn't die. Because he always has to be there making the sacrifice. He has to be eternal. Whoever the true high priest is has to be eternal. That's beautiful. It's That's pretty beautiful. awesome, yeah. And that comes into something that I do want to talk about in a little bit. But I want, I want to stick with this idea of other religions and their portrayal of God becoming man. We talked about uh, gods coming down and disguising themselves as men. That is certainly not the incarnation. And yet... In the early church, there was a heresy called docetism that talked about God disguising himself as man, that that the man Jesus was not really there. That was an image that was protected by God. Uh, that way, God didn't have to die. Jesus' death on the cross was, a, I don't know, a hologram or a projection. It was... Something other than God actually he, he dying. He feigns death. He fakes it. I've heard he that as well. He fakes it. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, one of the other ways that mythology portrays the relationship of, of God and man, sometimes mythology says that man can become God. Man can uh, improve his lot and... Uh, Sometimes through the feats that he has done, sometimes through trickery, sometimes through bribery, man becomes God. 
Again, that is not at all what the incarnation is. Um, Jesus was completely man and completely God. So in the book of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That identifies Jesus' eternity. And then in verse 14, John says, And the Word took on flesh and lived among us. Um, That defines Jesus' humanity. And in John, John doesn't go into detail. I, I think John understood what he was writing, but he struggled with the concepts at this early, early point in theological sophistication. Uh, Yes, Jesus was God. And yes, Jesus was man. How do those two things fit together? I don't know, but I know that Jesus was God and Jesus was man. That's interesting. There's also an early um, heresy in the church died out uh, probably before the end of the first century, so it died out pretty early. It was called adoptionism. There were some who said that Christ, uh, excuse me, Jesus was simply a man. Okay. When he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on Mm. him, and he became God. And then... When he was on the cross at the point that he said, it's finished, the Spirit of God was taken off of him, and the man Jesus died. See, this sounds like the New Age. (laughs) Heresies have a way of cropping back up. Yeah, yeah. So this one was, this one died out in the first century, but that doesn't mean that that's the only time it was ever seen. Right, right. Well, again, that is not at all what the incarnation is. God, truly God, becomes truly man. So Jesus is at the same time 100% God and 100% man. Making him a perfect representation or a perfect representative of both man and God. And the perfect mediator between exactly. God and man. He's, he's an arbiter. He, he can go between. Yep. And he can stand as a representative to both sides. So the question then becomes, if uh, the incarnation is not Jesus, uh, uh, not God disguising himself as man in Jesus, or it's not Jesus becoming uh, God when the Spirit of God dwells on him, what is it? And Paul answers that in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. After some opening verses, Paul, he he quotes something, and it's not super clear what he's quoting. Uh, We'll have to do a, a series of podcasts on this. There are two things that I believe that Paul quotes. One are early creeds, the way the church teaches um, theology is through creeds. And early on, very early on, even before Paul wrote his letters, apparently some of these creeds already existed. And a second way that the early church taught its theology was through hymns. Now, I think what Paul quotes in Philippians 2 from verse 6 to verse 11 is an early Christian hymn because it's poetic in structure. It includes terminology that's not very Pauline. So it's like Paul is he's quoting something else, but it is strongly Christological. It's, it's about Jesus. It's about Christ, about who he was and what he did. Here's uh, what Paul writes there, Philippians 2, verse 6. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. 
Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Now, you don't see that so much in the translation, but in the Greek, there is meter in these verses. It's ta-ta, 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 ta-ta. And, uh, and, and there's parallelism in these verses. All of the characteristics of good Hebrew poetry, of a good psalm, of a good song. Okay. And what Paul says is that when Jesus became a man, the New Living Translation says that he gave up his divine privileges. Other translations say he emptied himself. So there's a theological uh, concept that is based off of the Greek word for emptying yourself. That's called the kenosis. And what it refers to is the act of God emptying himself of divine power and divine privilege and accepting all on himself, all of the conditions and all of the limitations of being a human being. Okay. So, he he essentially, it's not that he's becoming less God. It's that he is choosing not to live as God. That's it exactly. Okay. He is emptying himself of divine privilege and taking the limitation of mortality. Right. It's, 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 uh, oh, I think I read this once. It's basically like he is, by, by taking, what was it? It's like subtraction by addition. Like, by accepting the mantle of human, he is giving up certain privileges as God. Yes. Okay. All right. Yes. That's fair. Yes. It's just kind of confusing because, like, some people want to turn it into he's not – while he was human, he wasn't God. It's like, no, he's both. He, he is both. <laughs> but he has chosen – to take it's, the divine privilege and lay it aside. And at any point in time, he could pick it back up. I mean, he, he had that option. He had that option. But he chose not to. You see this all then throughout uh, the Gospels. Uh, Jesus spent 40 days in the desert fasting, and at the end, he was hungry. He didn't have to be hungry. He could have divinely, Satan knew this, he could have divinely uh, ordered takeout. Uh, and so Satan says, see those stones? They kind of look like uh, little loaves of bread. So turn them into bread. You're hungry. You deserve this. And Jesus said, no. I have laid that aside. Now, there was nothing wrong. Uh, had he wanted to do that, he could have. But he had chosen to lay that divine privilege aside. Well, I, I love even that he doesn't just say no. He says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but through every word that comes from the mouth of God, which is quoting earlier scripture. Every time he refutes Satan, he quotes scripture to Satan. And that's a good indication of one one really positive way to resist temptation today. Right. Know your scripture. Quote it. But But I think the beauty of it is that he's not just denying himself but even in that moment, he knew that he was serving as an example as to what a man is to look like before God. That a man can't do that, and so I'm not going to do that. Right. I'm go- right. I'm going to live this life as a perfect man because there's never been one up until this point. So here's a question for you, Zach. Jesus did a bunch of miracles. The book of John, he does seven. In Mark, there's something like 30 and... Uh, Matthew, there. I mean, there's there's a bunch of miracles. Did he do that with I divine knew, power? I knew you were going here. Yeah, or did he do that through the power that any Christian also has? 
Well, that's a trick question because no Christian has power. So, ha, Randy. True. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, Got me. (laughs) um, I think he did that as a Christian. I think he did that as a believer in God. I also don't believe that it is. He, he perfectly knew the will of God. And I think we have to accept that because just because you or I want to see a miracle happen doesn't mean it's going to. It has to be within the will of God. That's right. But Jesus perfectly knew the will of God. So if Jesus wanted to do a miracle, he probably knew the right time to do it. Yeah. That's my stance. You know, and I think you're right. That's kind of where I am too. Now, the reality is we really don't know. (laughs) Right. Uh, But it kind of makes sense. And it makes sense together with something that Jesus says in John it's either 14 or 15. He looks at the disciples and he says, the works that you've seen me do, you will do greater works. So it's like he's saying, what I've done, I didn't do because I am God. I didn't do it through my divine power. In fact, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you can tap into the same power and you will do even more. Well, you know, the other thing, though, Without getting too far off track here, um, when Christ did his miracles, they were physical. Yeah. I've I've wondered if when he says you will do greater than these, that if he isn't referring to more of a spiritual nature of miracles, that you're going to change hearts. You're going to like, I brought men back to life. You're going to bring men back from the dead. You know, like it's a bringing them back from spiritual death. You know, like I, I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah, you've hit, you've hit on something really important there. Uh, in Acts 1, 8, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit has come on you, you'll receive power. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what kind of power what is, is power? that? Is that the power to do miracles? Well, the disciples already did miracles because when Jesus sent them out on their preaching campaign, uh, Scripture clearly says that the 12, even at that point, as young as their faith was, they healed the sick, they cast out demons, they did miracles. So this new power that they received in Acts 1-8 is apparently not the power to do miracles. Because they've already been doing that. They'd already been doing that. So if you look at what was different after Acts chapter 2, when they received the Holy Spirit in the first four verses, the thing that was different was them. Mm. All of a sudden, Peter stands up, the same Peter who 40 days before, well, 50 days before, stood in a courtyard before a servant girl who said, I think you're one of the disciples And uh, Peter swore, I don't know him. Now Peter stands up. He identifies himself as a follower of Christ, preaches a sermon, and at the end of this sermon says, This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has raised. And Peter's changed. What greater power is there? The power to actually change a person's heart, a change a person's mind. Right. Right. Because, I mean, I'm spitballing here. Are there any other, man, I'm trying not to get off topic. I'm sorry. Are there any other um, situations of Men performing miracles? I mean, there are. I mean, like Moses performed miracles. I mean, like other people did things biblically. So what Christ is bringing is different somehow. It is. It is. In fact, um, I believe that there is one time that Jesus shows his divine power. One time in all of his life. The transfiguration? Nope. 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 Although that might be the second time. <laughs> you, may be, you may be right there. Yeah, maybe yeah. there's two times, the transfiguration. But uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
John is the only one that records oh. this, where Judas came with the soldiers to arrest Jesus. Mm-hmm. It was dark, so uh, they can't quite make out who is there. And so when they arrive there, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And the way the translation reads is Jesus said, I am he. And the next verse says that the soldiers took a step backward and fell to the ground. Um, I don't think it took place quite as uh, easily as that. What Jesus actually says is not, I am he. He says, I am. And I believe what he did was he pronounced his name. That name was never pronounced in Israel. Only the chief priest on the Day of Atonement would say that name to the crowd of Israel. And then he would send the scapegoat out into the desert bearing the sins of Israel. I think that Jesus said his own name. I am Yahweh. And the soldiers were blown over backwards. It wasn't that they took a step backwards and then fell to the ground. It's that God's power absolutely exploded And they were knocked backwards. They got up again and Jesus said, who are you looking for? (laughs) And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And this time Jesus responds, I've already told you who that is. If you're looking for me, let these go. And the 12 walked out of the garden scot-free. When the soldiers had come to arrest them as well. Jesus protected the twelve. And I think he did it by showing his divine power. Basically saying to the soldiers. We can do this the easy way or the hard way. (laughs) You want to do it the hard way. You're not going to be able to take me from here. But I'll go with you. Let these go. And the twelve were never arrested. They got out of there. In fact, Peter whipped out his sword and uh, started attacking him. And I don't see any other reason why a fisherman with what essentially was a fishing knife was able to cut off the ear of the servant of one of the people there in the front of a group of soldiers. Right. If the soldiers had wanted to stop him, they would have, but they didn't want to. I think because they were looking at Jesus the whole time, thinking, what have we gotten ourselves into? Hmm. That's interesting. So back to the incarnation, back to kenosis, back to emptying himself. With that one exception, I believe Jesus emptied himself and became one of us. Uh, John 1.14, we read a little bit earlier that he took on flesh. And he dwelt among us. It literally says, it uses an unusual Greek word there. He made his tabernacle among us. He made his shelter among us. I think that's an attempt by John to make us think of the tabernacle, of God's glory, the Shekinah glory that dwelt in the tabernacle, because his next words, John's next words are, and we saw his glory. So God came, he divested himself of his divine privilege, and he became one of us, and it was glorious. We saw that glory. That's awesome. Um, I, I love the tabernacle verse. I, I love that, that word used there. Um, I... I it's, you know, it's you know hard the Greek for me. word is skene. I did not know that. Which a lot of people believe reflect the Hebrew Shekinah. The okay. So yeah. now Shekinah is like what Moses experienced coming off the mountain, right? <clears throat> that was the glory of God. That was the, the brilliant, resplendent image 
that God projected, the column of fire, uh, the the uh, pillar of smoke. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I I guess it's hard to grasp the absolute implications of what it means that that God came down in the flesh. Like we we read about it in the story. Um, and it happens in roughly, you know, 20 chapters, if you were to average it out, you know, but I mean, he spent 33 years on this earth as a man. Yeah. Living a regular life. I mean, like you and me, I mean, that's why I love the chosen that show the chosen. Yeah. Like one of my favorite things about that entire show is when Jesus is in his tent and he's just by himself. The little kids are spying on him. And he's sitting there and he's working on some kind of little whittled wooden thing he's going to sell at market. And he just like makes sure the lid on it works. And then he just says, it's good. And he smiles. <laughs> and I loved that because it's like that was to me in that show. That was the like most human moment with God. Like you get the. This is good. This thing I've made is good, which yeah. is very Old Testament oh, Yahweh. Gosh, yeah. But then oh, yeah. you've got Jesus as a man just sitting here in this tent, just making sure the little hinge works. It's just the little hinge mechanism. It's not even a big deal, but he's just making sure it works right. And that was a perfect illustration of that to me. It is. It is. So you get the disciples that traveled with him. They They lived with him for over three years. They knew what made him laugh. They knew what made him cry. Uh, they knew what he smelled like after he ate garlic. <laughs> but because he was human, 100% fully human at the same time that he was 100% fully God. I love it. Now, the book of Hebrews. I, I uh, did a little bit of research here, uh, getting ready to come in here. I didn't want, want to... Look like a complete fool talking about the incarnation. <laughs> so I came in here and did a little bit of research. And uh, first time, I know I've read this verse before, but I never really paid that much attention to. From Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, because God's children, this is the New Living Translation, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who had lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Boy, it doesn't get much clearer than that. Why did God become man Because he had to. He's breaking the cycle of death. He is breaking the power of Satan through death. Mm. And the only way he can do that is by becoming a man and experiencing death. This may be above our pay grade, (laughs) this this question, (laughs) but why do you think, what about God dying? broke that cycle. Mm. Do you think it's that the grave couldn't hold him? That the grave could hold any man, but it can't hold God himself? Well, I know there are songs that say that the grave couldn't hold him. <laughs> right, right. But but that's kind of my thought. I mean, like, there was never a man that death couldn't overcome. But death couldn't overcome God. Say that again. Well, so so every man that had ever died stayed dead. But when the God of the universe dies, he doesn't stay dead. Yeah, I like that. And so do, is that what it is that breaks the cycle of death? Is that, that, that God became a man, that he would be the first man that, that it, it was basically to prove the point to death and say, you have no power over these yeah, people anymore. Yeah, I... It, I think there's a lot there. Now, now I, I think that is at least one thing that happens. Um, I think Christ's resurrection 
uh, is full of other realities as well, other meanings and, and other purposes as well. But certainly one of the purposes is to show that death no longer uh, controls the destiny of man. Jesus is called the firstborn of the resurrected. Uh, he's the first one, but we're going to follow suit. Uh, we will also come back to life. Now, so, sorry, I'm, I'm just connecting dots here, but Christ was given all authority on heaven and on earth. And I guess part of that could be to have authority over something like death would yeah. mean conquering it first. Right, right. Right. I don't know. Just a thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the other things, um, and and this inevitably it relates the crucifixion and resurrection back to the incarnation I think another thing that happened on the cross is Christ Christ freed us from uh, the guilt of our sin and from sin itself. Now, Christ didn't experience sin except on the cross when he took our sin on himself. Christ also on the cross freed us from powerlessness from weakness because he experienced those things on our behalf he experienced weakness on our behalf Mm -hmm. christ freed us from shame on the cross because he experienced shame on the cross uh old testament clearly says everyone who hangs from the tree will be cursed, will be shamed in Christ, was shamed on the cross. He took all of that and defeated all of it. So it's not just death. It's death and sin and fear and shame. He took all of that and probably more than just those. But uh, It's basically that you can be free from all those things because Christ took it for you. That's right. And the only way he could take take it on himself was by becoming one of us. How can God experience shame? How can God experience weakness? He can't. But when God becomes man and lays aside his divine privilege as the man, he can experience weakness and shame. He never experienced sin, but he took our sin. He took my sin on himself. Right. That was, um, here a while back talking about the word forgiveness. I, one of my classes, I, I was talking about the word forgiveness. And one of the implications of forgiveness in Hebrew is that it's to carry something. Uh, that, that When Christ forgives you of your sins, he can do that because he's carrying it he for you. It. He took yeah. it for you. Um, and, and just one more plug, too. Um, I was listening to the Spoken Gospel podcast, and they made a claim. I don't always agree with all their thoughts, <laughs> but a lot of them I do. And um, one of the things they said was, um, you know, people who've experienced um, that have been, like, violated even, like, sexually, that that Christ took that for them as well, that he's hanging wow. almost naked on a cross in yes. front of everyone for all he to see. He is literally naked. It's not, there's no almost there. There was there. nothing on, on him. stripped him Stripped there. him naked. So, yeah. I mean, e- That even, was part of the shame. Okay, well, there you go. So, so my point is like, he has experienced such an array that he can, he can relate to you no matter where you are. In life, he has felt it in some way. Yeah, yeah. That's that's frightening. That's liberating. <laughs> all at the same time. Um, I suppose the last thing that I really want to say about the incarnation 
is uh, it, it, its purpose in fulfilling God's promise to Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham when Abraham comes out of Ur the Chaldees. He says, uh, in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. So how does that blessing transfer? Ultimately, it transfers through Jesus. Uh, when Jesus is born, all of the nations of the world receive the blessing of God becoming man, dying for them, so that they can be freed of the effects of sin, of Adam and Eve's sin, and of their own sin, and be restored not necessarily to the Garden of Eden, but at least restored to a positive relationship with God so that they too, like Adam did, can walk with God in the cool of the day and enjoy his presence. Um, Related to that, if you go the sort of Michael Heiser supernatural unseen realm worldview, um, that's also the moment in which Christ takes back the authority over all of the nations. Because if you look at the Jewish worldview at um, at Babel, when God divided up the nations and said, fine, I'll hand them over to the whatever gods they want. And then he goes to Abraham and says, you'll be my people, right? When God says one day it'll be all the nations, he's looking forward to the moment where God is going to take back his authority over all the nations, whereas he had previously handed it over to the world. But now he's saying, no, it's mine again. And in the sense of the incarnation, uh, uh, the New Testament says very clearly that God will put all things on earth under his feet, under his authority. Under his, it, so yeah. God takes back that authority and hands it over to Jesus and says, you clean this mess up. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Well, um, is that everything we've got on incarnation? Oh, my goodness, I think there's probably a whole lot more. I'm I'm sitting here with a book, a theology book, and uh, we've gotten about a page of it. (laughs) I'm here to learn, man. I sat down here just going, okay, Randy, what do you got for me? So I I enjoy this. I always, uh, (coughs) I like when you kind of bring some fun stuff to the table for me. So this is, yeah, this is interesting. I think it's appropriate to talk about this at Christmas time. So, um, even though you're probably listening to this after Christmas, spend some time and think back. Uh, the, the, the birth of the baby Jesus, it's more than a cute little baby. Uh, it's more than a way in a manger. Uh, it is God. God. The God of the universe. Becoming man. Right. And One the, of us. And, and that cute little baby in that manger, I mean, that's, that is an infinite God packaging himself in this finite little piece of flesh. I mean, essentially, that's the idea. It's it's mind-blowing, and you can't fully grasp it, and you're not meant to, but you are to stand in awe of it. I mean, that's kind of what we're called to do. That's right. That's right. So I was looking at uh, one of the, one of the uh, kind of a, a poem that uh, one of the old church fathers, let me see if I can find it here, Real quick, I just thought it was incredible. Uh, it's it's the difference between the incarnate Son, uh, uh, Christ as God, and Jesus as man. Uh, as Christ, he was the father of the mother. As Jesus, he was the son of his mother. As uh, Christ, he had no mother. He existed eternally. As Jesus, he had no father. (laughs) As Christ, begotten from the father. As Jesus, generated from a mother. As Christ, he was one in being with the Father. As Jesus, he was one in being with us, with humanity. As Christ, he was born, not made. 
He is the only begotten Son, the eternally begotten Son. But as Jesus, he was both born and made. As Christ, he was illimited in his spirit. As Jesus, he was limited in his flesh. As Christ, he was uncreated. As Jesus, he was created. Book of Colossians says he's the firstborn of all creation. I struggled with that until I realized the incarnation. That's what Paul's talking about there. As Christ, he was infinite. As Jesus, he suffered. As Christ, he lived outside of space and time. As Jesus, he was bound by space and time. Very interesting, very interesting, just the differences, the paradox that's there that was existent, present at the same time in Jesus being fully God and fully man. Well, it's amazing because you have to be careful because if you go with kind of the the new – or sorry, um, the new age view or like what Richard Rohr – how Richard Rohr would look at this. He wants to separate separate the Christ from the Jesus. But it's the same. Jesus yes. is the Christ. Jesus the is point. Christ. So when Randy's reading that, understand he is both of those things. That's right. It, it's not. The, at the same time. Exactly. The Christ is not something to be grasped at, something to be uh, achieved. Jesus is is God. Jesus is the Christ. But that's what's so mind-blowing about it is is Jesus is his that human portion of him and and Christ is the infinite God of the universe and he is both at the exact same time. Incredibly hard to get a grasp of. No, we but we don't have to. <laughs> we All just we have, have to, to believe it. it. That's right. <laughs> it's the truth. I don't understand how how the wind works on a basic level, but I know it blows every day, you know, like <laughs> I, I'm sure somebody does. That's a poor yeah. example, but <laughs> that's that's my point. Yep. I uh, I hope that you guys enjoyed this. Um, I always enjoy letting Randy just uh, let him let him get rolling over there and and just listen. Um, but uh, we we hope you have a merry Christmas. We hope you and your family stay blessed, and um, yeah, just uh, stay salty. Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take, or art to make, or perhaps businesses to build. It's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. If you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, search and follow the Messenger Movement Podcast on your favorite podcast platform today or lifeaudio.com.